thank you all for being here. So Sarah goes by Sarah and Saide, and I told him I'd like to call him Saide. He was cool with that. I am Ruxandra, but I go by Rux, so feel free to <laughs> call us whatever's easiest. Um, we just thought we'd start uh, by giving you all a little intro about who we are and how we got into this. So, so do you want to start, Saide? Sure. Um, so my name is Sarah Quevedo, or Saide Quevedo. Um, and so, yeah, so I began uh, in audio at Youth Radio in Oakland, California. Hey, woo, woo. Yeah, uh, there are a few people who have worked there or gone through the program I see sitting here. Um, I began there as a, initially as a student and then an intern and then a staff member um, reporting for our juvenile justice and youth employment desks. Uh, I then went to school at the New School. Uh, studied journalism there as well in global studies. Um, and I've continuously um, worked around audio, if not with a the program, then in my own um, personal life, creating works. Um, and I now work at Latino USA. I've also worked for Audible. Um, yeah, Latino USA, woo, and Audible, woo. Um, and I've worked as a producer for both of them. And I, at the same time, um, consider myself a journalist, a producer, and an artist in that I do work um, that honestly I have a really hard time framing and defining um, to people sometimes. So it's much easier to show the work than it is to talk about it, um, which I'm sure if y'all work across mediums, you'll find as well and you'll have to find your own way of explaining it. Um, but I work in multimedia so that, by that I mean I experiment with video, I experiment with photo. Um, audio is often at the heart of what I'm doing. It's what helps move the story along. Um, but the photos and videos, uh, and objects, as you'll see in some of the slides that I'll show you later, um, to me are sort of the, if it was a body, the, the audio is the heart and then everything else is the skin and the bones um, and it helps create the thing that um, you're, you're seeing in front of it, but the, the audio is what moves it along. Um, and I can talk, I'll talk a little bit more about that later when I'm talking about my work, but in the meantime, Rooks, if you wanna explain, sure. introduce yourself. So I, um, let's see, I also come from Latino USA. Woo! But I was there way back in 2003, right after graduate school. Um, back when it wasn't that good, frankly. Now it's a really great show. Um, but you know, but I, I had my start in border reporting journalism. I went to a graduate school at UC Berkeley, um, and I really wanted to be doing foreign reporting. For me, the job at Latino USA was a chance to, to cover the border and to get into international. Um, reporting. Um, I first got into radio because the Kitchen Sisters came to my class at UC Berkeley and I just totally fell in love with the work and I, it blew me away, it blew me away and, and I kind of abandoned my magazine reporting work for a while and focused on radio. Uh, but then as it turned out, I, I started looking for ways to, to blend those things together, writing, photography, feature work, audio work, and that's kind of where my career has taken me. Um, I've been in and out of uh, regular employment, <laughs> or rather, you know, staff jobs and independent work, uh, and finally settled on independent, full-time committed independent work about six years ago, and I'm very, very, very happy about that. Just to give you a little background, I've been both kind of like, you know, on staff on, on numerous shows and, um, and doing my own work. So a lot of the work that I'll be talking about today is stuff that I've done in my own time as, as a freelancer, as an independent, and that's what's allowed me to grow as a producer. 
Uh, Said and I will be interviewing each other, so to say, a little later. But before we do that, we also wanted to play you some of the work we've done that we feel most defines our experimentation with working beyond audio or with audio as a part of it. This was the very first story I collaborated with, with my husband, who's a photographer. Um, and this was a, a story in, in Mexico. He, uh, Bear took his portrait on the left, and then they asked us for that photo to do uh, a poster for him to be released from, from jail. That was the very first time when we realized the work that we're doing has a life beyond the stuff that we think it's for. It's useful to the people who we are talking to and, and spending time with. So this was back in, yeah, 2005 or six. Um, and so we, we committed since then to, to keep in touch with people, to develop relationships, and to really look beyond the journalism. This was uh, a lady whom we met in, in, uh, in the Amazon in Peru, and we kept in touch and, and visited her when she moved to, to Lima um, 20 years later. She's still around. She's 101. And this is a boy whom we met in Haiti. And also, we kept in touch with his family and saw him five years later. Um, you know, and, and, and I bring this up because I, for me, um, finding ways to, to go beyond audio have everything to do with who these stories are for, who we typically think they're for, and who these people are. I mean, I heard the term this morning of my subject over and over and over again, and I have a real problem with that. I recognize that's the training I have as a journalist and, and the term we use as storytellers, but I try to constantly challenge myself on the extractive nature of what I do and how I can challenge that and, and develop real friendships with people, which I realize takes me far away from journalism and objectivity and all this stuff, but we'll get into that later. So this is, this is a story that I did uh, initially about 10 years ago in the eastern Coachella Valley in Southern California. Um, real briefly, this is a farm working community that is living right next to dumps, open air dumps that are being burnt regularly. Um, in typical fashion, you know, like you would report the story and then bring it back to your public radio station. It would broadcast and, and that was that. Um, you know, over time, I, I, I've tried to look for ways to one, make these stories available and understood by the local community, but I wanted to not just translate them into Spanish, but to hold some sort of forum where we could like discuss these topics there, not back in LA where I lived and where I, where I do most of my work. So, you know, I because we don't have that much time, I don't think I'm going to play the audio this time. But I want to give you an idea of, of how this story evolved over 10 years. I'm still reporting on it. I'm still. I'm very thankful that I have relationships with a lot of these folks here. Um, and, and like all stories, right, like all life, it's, it still goes on. There's still stuff there that I keep finding out. In fact, it keeps getting better the more, the more I learn about it and the more I, I'm trusted by, by the local community. Um, I just completed a magazine feature about them, about this community of promotores or like community health workers that are trying to, to beat the odds in this place. And, um, you know, the, the public face-to-face -face live storytelling aspect of the work that I do kind of started with this project, this idea of like bringing my story back, but not just in audio form as in like, let me play it back to you and let's clap at the end, but um, as putting myself in a position of 
welcoming feedback and criticism and and almost an education of sorts of being being challenged on how I represent people and their stories. Um, it's not. It's definitely not easy. Okay, this is the second project uh, that I did with with my husband, and we've been collaborating for about 13, 14 years now, starting with that first Mexico project, which is the one that I, I showed you the very first photo of. Um, this was uh, with KCRW. You know, we'd been looking at, at the data and um, demographic data of Los Angeles and how it has some of the largest, well, LA being so huge, but because it's, it's such a big city with such incredible socioeconomic cultural diversity, it has some of the fastest growing and largest population of people over 65 that are growing and yeah, aging in place, it's called, that are people who are getting old and staying in their homes and staying in their previous uh, lifestyle, but, but that's going on in the, same, in the same place, and it's all happening in LA, which is a place that's going through incredible, you know, you know changes, gentrification, um, cost of living getting higher. And we wanted to, to tell these stories about, about seniors, about older adults in, in ways that, that really ch challenged a lot of the stereotypes, but that also told the incredible diversity that you might find in, in these neighborhoods only you know, in, in a 20-mile area from Lincoln Heights down to South LA, where you might find Vietnamese, Chinese, African-American, you know, Salvadoran, Mexican, white, you know, rich, poor, what have you, uh, and how aging is, is playing out, is looking like for these folks. Um, so this, this project took us about six to seven months to report. This was done through the Independent Producer Project and a, and a grant that we got from the Eisner Foundation. And it was dreamed up really as a, as a radio series to be played on KCRW, but we really wanted this stuff to, to go back to a lot of these older adult communities. So we printed a newspaper, we did a lot of public forums, um, and then small community gatherings and exhibits. We've really come to rely on, on uh, the local libraries, which have been amazing. They're very, very hungry for, for content, for, for stories and for nonfiction content about the communities where they are. And, and dreaming up a project that really brought these disparate you know, communities in LA together, it, it was great to have the libraries be a part of that and to ha have them help us dream up the possibilities of telling these stories. So I just want to play you a little bit here. This is, this is Patty Balbaneda, and um, here she is at, um, at a senior center uh, that she goes to, uh, that she first started going to for, for its uh, food bank. And that's where we met her at the line for the food bank. Patty shows up at the senior activity center as soon as the doors open. It's 8.30 in the morning. She's wearing black tights and a t-shirt with her signature long, dangly earrings. Her back is hunched over as she pushes a walker. Behind her, more graying men and women, some moving faster than others. She first made the walk into this building 10 years ago. She was 60 years old, curious, and unsure of what she would find inside. She wasn't sure if she belonged here yet, whether she was old enough to be considered a senior. She sat down by herself at a table in the back of the room, Within minutes, she remembers being surrounded by people, 
And they saw that I liked the Mexican music and they started being really warm and they'd fix my collar and they would ask me questions and they would laugh at my jokes. One of those people was a woman who would come to mean a lot to Patty. Her name was Margaret. She was 20 years her senior. She was very sociable and she was funny and she was, you know, she was a lady. Mexican-Americans like Margaret are a majority here in Lincoln Heights. But Patty is of Irish descent, the Guera, they called her affectionately, the blonde one. Patty calls herself a Latina by association. The father of her kids was Mexican, and she has always felt more at home cooking and eating black beans and rice. Over the course of 30 years in East L.A., Patty's learned broken Spanish. At the center, Patty will grab a cup of coffee and a pan dulce, a sweet bread, and head over to her regular table, where she sits with other ladies for hours, chit-chatting. I thought my life was over at 62. But when I started coming here and I saw all these people, all these characters, and they were all here and they were all still coming every day. So one old man in wheelchair with no legs, he kept on getting kicked out because he was grabbing ladies' butts. And life goes on. I just want to share a couple more things about these projects. Um, they have led to other collaborations and other venues and ways to present the work. Staying Home is a mini kind of community project that we developed after Going Gray uh, because we realized a lot of the seniors in Little Tokyo who are Japanese and a lot of the seniors in Chinatown who are Chinese or Vietnamese were facing a lot of the same issues. They're basically being evicted. This was going on. They're just ending up on the street um, because they can't afford these higher rents. And, and we thought it'd be really cool for them to come together and share stories. And so we, with this artist, um, Rustin Wu, we, we came together and we developed a one-day kind of get-together workshop party where we could be translating um, for people, which turned out to be incredibly challenging. But we did it. Um, and, and also be meeting more people that we could be interviewing for, for the larger project, right, for Going Gray. That's it. Society, tell us about Reconstrucción. All right. Um, so this is a project that I began, Jesus, I began this in 2014. Uh, it was my sophomore year of college. Uh, and this was around the time um, that people, I don't like to say this is when the, the migrant, the unaccompanied migrant crisis uh, began, because that didn't begin then. It had been happening for years and years and years. People just started caring and noticing, or people started noticing. Um, and so um, I'm half Salvadoran. Uh, my mom's side is from El Salvador. Um, she was born in San Francisco, as well as I. And uh, I was. And so what happened was I was very curious about the history, the country that my family came from. And I was doing a lot of historical research. And then all of these news reports were coming in about unaccompanied minors at the border, the majority of them from El Salvador. And I just thought, these issues are deeply connected. There, there has to be a connection between these histories, and I want to find out what it is. I had never visited El Salvador in my life. Um, I had dreamed of doing so, um, but did not have the resources. And so I, I went to the new school and was lucky enough, I applied for a grant and um, for a very broad idea. My question, um, I was researching about the war, the civil war that happened in El Salvador from um, 80 to 92, officially. 
And they gave me a grant to go and interview people around the question of how has the war impacted your life? Which you th if you think about it, like if you were applying for any other grant, they would never give you that. Um, but, I was, but I was like, yeah, that'll be fun. Like I'll interview people. And they were like, sure, here's $8,000, which is a lot. First of all, it was like a bunch of money um, for a very, very general project that I was like, I think I'll take some photos and interview people. Like maybe it'll be an audio slideshow. Who knows? Um, I don't think a lot of people knew about this grant. So they're very excited that I had applied. Um, and I was very lucky that I had that money. I was given that money and I took my first trip to El Salvador. I spent a month and a half um, in El Salvador, which is a lot um, for your first time visiting anywhere um, by yourself. And what it ended up developing into, and I'll get into this a little bit more during our conversation, what started out originally as a simple audio photo slideshow ended up developing into a multimedia transnational exhibit featuring eight Salvadoran artists, a bunch of nonprofits working with Salvadorans within the US in, and in El Salvador, uh, two artist collectives based out of El Salvador, um, and four or three audio producers um, and event producers, as well as a bunch of other people. So it began as a project with me my, just by myself with the microphone and camera being like, okay, let's see where we go with this ended up becoming something much larger than I had anticipated. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more in detail about how that happened later, but um, just to give you an idea of what it is, I'll give you the spiel. Reconstrucción is a three-part project. Uh, the first part is um, the part that I worked directly on in terms of um, audio production and media production. It's called Las Mesas. Um, there's an example. This is Juan Pablo's Mesa. Um, and they look very different, and I'll show you another photo. They look very different in every location. but. Um, the idea of Las Mesas is it's eight, or, uh, sorry, six stories from different individuals and families who lived through the war, either in the country or outside of it. Um, and it looks at the voices of the, those individuals and traces their stories um, and asks kind of what did this war, how did this war change their lives? What did it mean to them? How is it still impacting their lives right now? Um, so Juan Pablo, for instance, was a soldier during the war. He was forcibly recruited by the military. Um, the jacket that you see on the right is his jacket. And what it is, is we told these stories through audio clips. We asked them, I took, uh, so it's told through objects, photographs that I took, um, and, and audio. So every object has a piece of audio attached to it. And so you get an MP3 player when you go into the space and you can pick and choose an object that you want to listen to and listen to the story that's attached to it. Or you can just go one through 10. Um, and, that, and, and there's a narrative arc, but each one exists as its own sort of uh, its own piece. Um, so let me see. So that's another one. This is for Sofia and Dolores. They're um, activists for the disappeared. Um, and they, all the objects that you see here, um, the things that are not my photographs, so you can't really see them here, but there are a few of my photos. For instance, on that little table down below, there's a printed photograph in a frame. I took that photo, but the photos and everything that's on the wall, those are things that were lent to me by these sisters. Um, and it's been three years now that I've been working on this and that we've had this, ex been exhibiting this project. Um, so, I th and I think that's a testament to the trust and relationship that I built with every single one of these people that they are lending me precious objects that they literally went through a war with um, to exhibit and share as a part of this project. And then part two of the project is um, we had this thing, I think I have a photo of it later, we had an interactive wall. So we toured this exhibit across the US. We went to Long Island, Brooklyn, Washington, DC, Maryland, and Los Angeles. And then it went to El Salvador, it went to Santa Ana and San Salvador. And every location that we chose in the US 
um, is a location where we knew that there was a large community of Salvadorans historically from the war who had migrated during the war. Um, so we went to Brentwood, Long Island, and we set up shop in uh, the Salvadoran consulate. And every location we chose was a, spa a space that we knew Salvadorans were coming to in their day-to-day -day lives, um, that they wouldn't have to search out or like get a, you know, somehow stumble upon a newsletter and an art, you know, an art newsletter or something and show up to a gallery. We, we brought this to, to them instead of asking them to come to us. And then part three is that we asked eight Salvadoran artists to also contribute work, um, Salvadoran artists living in the country and then also in the US, um, to contribute work that spoke to contemporary issues and issues around the war. Um, and I don't have any photos of that, but we do have a website and social media, so find me with for that. Um, and then the reason I put up this photo, so this is, um, this is Julio. Julio uh, is the sole, one of the sole survivors of his family. Um, there was a massacre during the war called El Masacre El Calabozo. And uh, his father and younger brother, or older brother were killed. His mother had died previously. Um, and a, his other brother was basically hawked off to, another, to a random family, European family, um, after. And so he shared his story with me. That's sort of the context. And I wanted to play a video um, that has a it's a, an example of what this kind of look, might look like um, in an exhibit. Uh, so I'm just gonna scroll down. So this is a photo of him and his wife, Dina, um, incredibly sweet woman. And um, this is her talking about um, Julio and what this, what this particular moment in time uh, means for him after the war. ¿Cómo conocí a Julio? Bueno, lo conocí en una ocasión muy, muy, muy triste, pues, porque como él estaba solito y eh, lo que más, o sea, a mí me, me conmovía era la historia de él, ¿verdad? Cómo había quedado él en su vida huérfano, cómo se había criado. En el lugar donde yo me crié se escuchaba, ¿verdad? Y se veía quizás un 5% de lo que era la guerra, o sea, nada, por decirle algo. Cuando fue la guerra, como yo estaba muy pequeña, uno de la edad de mi hija puede estar pasando por cosas feas. Y como uno es un niño y sabe que tiene un papá o una mamá, o sea, uno no, no, no sabe qué es la realidad de la vida hasta que uno crece o hasta que uno ve el sufrimiento de otras personas, se da cuenta que es realmente una guerra o que es realmente perder a sus padres, a su familia completa. ¿Verdad? Porque por medio de mi esposo me he podido dar cuenta que sí que en la vida lo más importante quizás no es tener dinero, sino tener una familia. Por eso yo a mi esposo yo le digo que, que cuide su familia porque su familia es su hija. Ella es su carne, es su sangre y es lo único que tiene. And um, as I mentioned, so these weren't just uh, photographs that I took, but also objects that were lent to me. And those um, were family photos, clothing, um, you know, posters. In this particular case, Dina and Julio have two jobs. Um, but one of them is they, I don't know how to say this in English, they, they, they make listones for like anniversaries and baby showers and things like that. And um, invitations? invitations, yeah, like little like ribbons, basically. Um, and so I would, I'd spent a lot of time um, with their family, including in the shop, which was very hot. And, um, and they, let, they, they gave me, they had a giant scrap of, of these listones and they just gave them to me. Um, and so when you go and see this photograph, it's, you see these ribbons wrapped around them. 
um, and there's audio attached to it that's them talking about the work, talking about the work that they do um, and what it means to them. Um, and then the last example, um, I just want to preface this by saying that I think about collaboration in a lot of different ways. I think there are levels of collaboration. So that one was a collaboration between myself, these artists, uh, these nonprofits, um, and uh, the producers that I was working with. Um, which is a little bit more straightforward in terms of like, you know, we all had our different roles. Um, and then, do y'all listen, do y'all listen to Latino USA? I heard you wooing, yeah, before. <laughs> um, so I don't know if you've heard, I, I did a story about my family called The Quevedos. Um, I'm gonna play a little tiny clip of it um, for y'all, and then I'll tell you why I feel that it w fits within this sort of for framework of collaboration. Um, and just for reference, the beginning of the story, we're at a wedding. And I immediately am going to tell you it doesn't start at a wedding, so. <laughs> it doesn't really begin at a wedding. It begins four years ago on Mother's Day. My mom, Maria, picks me up from my job. I'm a part-time busboy and part-time journalist at this point. The night before, she had called me and told me that she had some news, but she needed to tell me in person. So, um, I guess, uh, you know, I, I know how you and your brother want to know more about our family. And so I had this idea that maybe for Mother's Day we could go to your grandmother's grave. We could talk about her and you get to know some more about her because I don't think I've told you very much about her. She's told me almost nothing about my grandma. I don't even know if she's dead or alive. The few details that I know are these. My mom's parents are both from El Salvador, but they met in San Francisco, California in the 1960s. My grandmother's name was Alicia. My grandfather's name was Jose Ignacio. She was 17, he was 37. They got married and had my mom. And then one day, my mom left home and never went back. I told you very much about her. Yeah, I didn't even know she was dead. Well, that's, I thought she was dead, yeah. That's my, been my working assumption because she was so sick, you know, when I left. Um, and I didn't think she would get better. My mom tells me that she asked her friend, Tim, who's a journalist, to look up information about my grandma. And he's found something. He didn't find a grave. He didn't find a death certificate. But he found this, this woman who lives in San Francisco. We don't know for sure if it's her or not. She would be 66 years old. She could be could not be her, and I don't know. But anyway, there's no grave to go visit and talk about your grandmother, because we haven't found it yet, if it exists, and maybe this woman in San Francisco is her. If you're, if you're already not convinced to go and listen to this episode, I, don't, I can't help you. Um, but <laughs> go and listen to Latino USA in general, if you, if you can. But anyway, so the reason that I included this piece is because I think about, I think collaboration is, also, is a mindset that you go into the work with. It's not just sort of like, oh, I want to do this project and I want this person and this person to take photographs and we'll put it together. Um, I think collaboration can also exist with, as you said, I hate the word subjects because I, I agree that it like comes with some weird power, power dynamics, but the people that you're helping who are putting voices to the story and who are helping tell that story are also collaborators if you allow them to. And so a large part of this story and the storytelling was, um, was through collaboration with my family. Like the decisions that were made around what we were doing on a day-to-day -day while we were recording and documenting this 
were not just my decisions, they were also decisions that I asked them about. Like, do you want to go and record at this place? Do you want to go and do this thing with me? It was never, oh, I'm going to go and record this thing you come with. Um, and they helped, you know, for instance, and I don't want to spoil this, but I had a, there's a wedding at the end, surprise, surprise. And, um, and we, we were supposed to attend the wedding party afterwards. That was supposed to be part of the story that I was going to record. And when we got to the wedding, my mom was like, I don't want to go to the wedding party. And so we didn't. That makes her a collaborator. She chose the direction that that story was going to go in and decided it was going to end there instead of going somewhere else. And I think, um, again, like the, it's a collaborative mindset as opposed to, um, you know, each person being an instrument um, to make your larger product. They're all they're all part of um, the decision making process if you let them be. Um, so, and I'll talk a little bit. I'm working on something else with this, and I'll talk about that later. But um, those are my. My two examples, and I think we're gonna mm -hmm. we're gonna get into a conversation with each other. I'm gonna should I? Well, that was a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you, which is, you refer as yourself as a multimedia artist and a journalist, and I want to know this because it's something I've struggled with always. Is like when does the journalism end and the artistry begin, and vice versa? And are are these two things ever kind of at war with each other, right? And I'm talking mostly about this concept, right, that gets tossed around and we all aspire to or work hard at, just objectivity and balance. You know? But when you're telling a story about your family and about feelings and about people, how do these two disciplines kind of like interact in your life, in your work? So yeah, that's a question I ask myself a lot and get asked a lot. I even had one of my collaborators um, from one of the collectives that we've been, again, we've been working on Reconstruction for like three years together. And like three years in, I flew in when we were doing the exhibit in, in the capital in San Salvador. And he was like, he's like, so what are you? Like, what do you, <laughs> I was like, that's such a weird question to be asking at this point in the process of us doing this. But he was like, I don't, you know, like me and my friend were talking, me and the other collaborator were talking about it. Like, what are you, are you like a documentary person? Are you an artist? Like, which one is it? Um, and I honestly don't know. I think that like the heart of the work, at least of an artist in my mind, and the, the heart of the work of a journalist in my mind are the same, right? Like, we're, we want to we wanna spread truth. We want to give truth. There's an honesty that's at the center of everything that we do. Um, and I feel like I say artist and journalist because I feel like people can ground that in something. But what it honestly comes down to is like the material and the form can change. But the thing that's going to be similar in all of the work is it'll always be true. It'll always be honest to what what's happening. I'm never going to change um, a story to mean more than what it is. I'm not going to add meaning where there is no meaning. I'm going to interpret um, where I can. I'm going to search for, I'm going to add my truth as I see it, my individual truth um, and the truth of those who are involved. Um, but then, but then, yeah, sort of more generally, um, yeah, just staying, staying honest about um, the stories that are being told and trying to, to represent them and, and share them in a way that, um, that doesn't stray from, from what, ac what actually has happened. Um, so I think that's where they, but, but yeah, I, I don't know. The, art, the artistry part is difficult because like art can be so much about embellishment and about making something, um, adding an extra layer that can really complicate things. But I think there's a way to do that that's ethical and, um, and doesn't manipulate or, or change what your, what your goal is, which is ultimately to share a story. Um, yeah, so I'm curious about... Um, this collective that you have, Phonografia, um, with your partner. And I'm curious about what the inception of it was because I feel like it's much 
it would be much easier to just be an audio journalist and work on your own and tell these stories and like give them to KCRW or give them to you know um, a public radio station. And instead, you chose to go into like a formal collaboration with this person. So why not tell those stories? You know, him as a photographer and you as an audio journalist. Why come together and do do that work together? What does that do um, in terms of the stories that you're telling? So I'll just say for starters that the name was very aspirational. Like here's a collective of two people. <laughs> um, and we made up the word phonografia does not exist. Phono is sound, obviously. Grafia in Spanish or Latin, right? It's recording, documenting. Um, so we just kind of pulled that one out of somewhere um, and decided to, to call ourselves a collective. But I think it formalized our sensibility, our approach to telling stories, and to try to keep some principles and guiding some guiding principles in mind as we approach any story. We both had the commitment early on when we met to tell stories about human beings and their, to, the, to, to the full humanity that is accessible to our eyes, recognizing our own biases and, and all of that and our cultural differences. And, and it really started as an effort to tell uh, stories internationally and specifically in Latin America. So I'm from Venezuela, I failed to say this, and I came to the States when I was a 14-year-old. And I saw my role in telling stories about Latin America as something of a translator, I guess you could say, like trying to communicate the things that I knew to be true and misunderstood about this region to an American or English-speaking audience. So that's where it started. But I honestly, when we started doing this in 2005, I did not realize that we would keep collaborating for now 13 years and that it would become such an intrinsic part of how I see storytelling uh, and that I would become so comfortable and in need of collaboration. I mean, it's really opened my eyes to the possibility of working with different people and, and other people, and I, I need that. I've realized, you know, I, I can do that that story for KCRW or what have you, but I find the process of having not just an editor, but a, a, a peer who lends me a second set of ears and eyes and, and criticism, because criticism is huge. We barely ever get it, you know? I. I get messages from friends who say, oh, that was so great, that was lovely, but I never get that, that sucked, Rux, try again, yeah. or whatever, like I need that, and, and I, I depend on, on that, and, and Bear is the person <laughs> to do that for me, and, and same with, you know, we do it for each other. So it's, um, for me, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer in collaboration, and I, I really believe in, um, in also challenging your own ideas and formulas along the way. Um, so, so having this, this relationship that started, um, you know, without a real, we didn't have a very clear direction, but having, looking back on it and thinking that, that we've grown so much um, as artists and as storytellers, um, you know, to me, makes me feel like it was, it was the right decision at the time and that I find the process of of working with others all the more enjoyable. It's different, collaborating with another artist is that very different than, than the collaboration you might do in an office under the constraints of, of the day-to-day -day of, of an agenda that may come from somewhere above you. Uh, when you're two people just trying to navigate everything from coming up with, with the ideas to how to frame them, to, to how to talk to folks, to how to establish relationships, how to 
sell this, how to dream up, you know, with great ambition. I mean, that that's very, very freeing. Um, so, so that's that's the story of how that came about. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Sure. I'm curious, how does your relationship um, influence the work, or does it influence the work? Like, do you? Because this isn't just someone who you go and see in the office ten to six. You know what I'm saying? And it's not just someone who you like hang out with sometimes when you really want to work on a project. It's someone that you're around a lot and know very intimately. And does that change the way that you approach the work or or think about the work with each other? Yeah, totally. Um, well, I, I I didn't come here to tell you all about my <laughs> my relationship problems, but no, I mean. Uh, it was hard at first. It was definitely hard at first. Um, we still struggle with how to draw the line between our personal lives and our professional lives. We have a kid, and our kid doesn't understand at all what we do. <laughs> we just hang out, and um, it, it all fuses together. You know, our kid, work, travel, personal lives. Um, well. I have to say, I, I've really uh, come to have great, great respect for visual storytelling. Um, I love what can happen when you bring together images and sound, and that's something we've been playing around with from the beginning, and it's not an obvious kind of, um, I mean, now there's a name for it, right? Multimedia, or what, what's the new one? Uh, transmedia, transmedia yeah. which is multimedia, uh -huh. basically. Um, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. I think. It's really taught me to to be more vulnerable, to be honest with you, to be more open to to criticism and to to learning new things. Because once you start collaborating with one person or one institution or one organization, you realize the potential of that way of working, and you open up to collaborating with others more. So, so I do have my projects that I do with Bear and that are very enriching and, and that we've we've gotten it down just how to like how to record while someone's taking pictures, how to follow up with this person or that person, how to be a team. But but I really um, I really love collaborating with other people too and 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 feel like I get the same kind of like joy and 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 challenge to my work when I do that with others. So Honestly, I can't imagine these days working on something solely on my own. It feels like being naked or, yeah, I don't know if, that, <laughs> if that's the right metaphor. It doesn't feel right. So I did want to tell you, ask you about Reconstrucción in particular, because it seems to me like such an incredibly ambitious project. I mean, you're talking about working with folks in different communities, a place you'd never, I didn't realize you'd never been to El Salvador before you went there for almost two months. Yeah. That's, so the whole thing seems um, uh, very ambitious, but also the chances of it not working out are great, right? Mm -hmm. So at which point did it kind of become this thing or did you have control or did you lose control and you allowed it to, to evolve into all these aspects and, and how much did you have did you have to facilitate those kind of relationships or the direction of the project along the way um, yeah so so as I mentioned it started started as a 
photo audio slideshow, um, which is funny. It's funny it became this thing because I didn't know how to put a photo audio slideshow together in a lot of ways. Like it was like ultimately like that's what led me to like, oh, maybe we should try something else. It was like, I don't know how to sync these things up. Whatever. Maybe we'll do an exhibit and it'll like travel across the world. Um, but no, so so it is ambitious. I think at the time I didn't realize that it was so ambitious. I just was like, oh, like, you know, we, we, what happened is I came back with the material that I'd had put together basically a photo audio slideshow, sort of, um, it was not that good, uh, and presented it at my university. And in watching it, I remember watching it with the people in the little auditorium and being like, oh my God, this is not what I want to be doing with this. Like, this is so not the way this is supposed to be presented. I decided I wanted it to be um, in a physical space. Uh, and, and then I also felt that I had lacked there were certain things lacking in the work. And I think, you you know, you've touched on this a little bit, but on the going back consistently, like I noticed when you were talking, when you showed that photo of the couple in the room, seven months of talking to them, like that's like the, I feel like that's, you know, like that's a good amount of time. And, I've, and I realized I, that I'd been there for a month and a half and I'd gotten a bunch of audio. I'd spent a bunch of time with people and it still wasn't enough. Like I still hadn't touched on the things that I wanted to touch on. And I realized part of that is that people aren't going to open up and tell you everything about their lives when you've, they literally just met you. You're like, hey, this, I'm here for the first time. Tell me about your dark secrets or whatever. Um, and, and so I decided to go back and, and interview those people again. I also realized certain voices were missing that I felt were really important. Um, Juan Pablo being one of those people, I hadn't spoken to anyone from the military as a result of my own biases and fears um, around the military and what they did in El Salvador during the 80s. Um, but I realized that that was important because there are still people who were soldiers during that time living in the country um, and outside of the country. Um, and so that was part of it. And then I also realized that I needed help. That was the biggest thing. That was the turning point. It was like I had this moment where I was like, I cannot do this alone. Like this will destroy me if I do it alone. And I put out a basically a call out and said, like, if you want to help me with this project, please, I need it. Um, and three people, I was lucky enough to have three other students at the new school um, who came and helped me. They helped me organize the audio. They listened to the interviews. They helped me cut things. Um, I sort of took an executive role in the sense that I really helped shape the narrative and the arc of the narratives. But they were the ones who like helped me get through so much of it. And then coincidentally enough, during my second trip when I was back, um, I ended up meeting two people from two different artist collectives who were very also very interested in doing work around the war and the legacy of the war. And they were like, hey, there are these other great artists. Why don't we include them? And I was like, yeah, that's great. Like, I'm, you know, I think it was also partly that I felt it was unfair for me as someone who was born in the U.S., grew up in the U.S., was raised by a Salvadoran mother who was also born in the U.S. Um, to take ownership of these stories. And I felt a certain sense of um, that I needed to let go of some of that ownership and let go of some of my own need to control and give it over to the people who are actually living within the country and who are actually um, living with the legacy of the war. Like, I think it's easy enough to, like, navel gaze around what that means, um, but to hand over the microphone and hand over some of that power to the people who actually are being affected by it and letting them run the show um, was really important, and I realized that it made it... Um, easier for me to feel okay telling those stories to, to know like, you know what, like even if I get it, even if I fuck this up and get it completely wrong, I know that half of this team is made up of people who I think could like really speak to the truth of this. Um, and they also acted as consultants in the work and like listened to pieces of the work and told me like, not sure why you're including that thing. Like, why don't you, why is there nothing about this? Um, but it really just snowballed. Honestly, like the very long short answer is um, this project began as, yeah, this very small thing. And then people started getting involved. 
and started having really good ideas that I listened to as well. Um, and I just, you know, and it continued from there. And one last part that I'll mention is that, you know, this larger tour, the tour was something that came later on in the process. We knew that we wanted it to be an exhibit. We were having a, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's an artist. We were all having a meeting together, myself, the producers, and him. And, and we were talking about where should we put this? Like, where's a good place to put this? And I was like, oh, well, the new school has galleries. Why don't we just do it in the new school? And he was like, my, he was like, my abuela, my grandma would never go to a gallery at the new school. Like, there's no way that she would go into Manhattan, like catch the train to Manhattan, go into some random university that she's never been to. Um, and that really stuck with me. And I realized that um, the point of this work, and I think a big part of it for me is like, you can put your stuff up in galleries, you can put it up in like larger institutions, but like that ultimately comes down to like, who are you making this work for? Like, who are you trying to, and I realized this, this work is not for, you know, the, the work is not meant to be in a gallery, the work is meant to be in the Salvadoran community. It's a, it's a reflection um, and it's a, an a exercise in memory and, and a community. And in order for that to be real and to, for that to, to, you know, to sort of manifest that and make it, make it happen, it needed to exist in Salvadoran communities. So we decided we were strictly going to be doing this in Salvadoran community spaces. So we held it in a, in a consulate. Um, we held it, uh, we held it in multiple consulates and embassies, Salvadoran consulate and embassies in youth centers that had um, large Central American populations, um, held it in just like really like rinky, like rinky dink little spaces across LA, um, but that where we knew Salvadorans we're gonna just show up in their day-to-day -day lives anyway. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, so, but that, of course, ended up being a much larger project and um, added much more work, but I also had collaborators, so it was easier. Um, go collaboration. <laughs> um, can I ask you a quick follow-up yeah. on that? I mean, I remember um, thinking when I listened to your work in Reconstrucción that, that a lot of these these projects are so very specific and are about and for communities, right? That that are not the public radio community, the podcasting listening community. So how do you know when when or or rather when you realize something is a hard sell for these mainstream venues? Um, who do you rely on or what do you rely on to kind of make these projects happen no matter what in those rinky-dink sites or whatever consulates wherever are good places for it yeah it's incredibly hard i pitched some of these pieces to different podcasts larger podcasts who showed some interest um, but it's incredibly hard to find homes for some of these things because people don't understand one they don't understand what they are um, that's one of the things with multimedia is like people don't understand what the hell you're doing unless it's an audio photo, photo slideshow. Um, and that's not what I wanted to do, obviously. And yeah, and, and sometimes it comes down to the fact that like, it's just not a podcast. Like this project was not a podcast. It was never going to be a podcast. And I had to kind of come to that realization and be like, you know what, like as much as, as um, engaging and as interesting as these narratives are, maybe they don't belong in a podcast feed. Maybe they belong in a like maybe they belong in a space like a physical space or in these community spaces and so then it became like pivoting to instead of like oh why don't these podcasts want to take these narratives to like okay so if they won't take them who will like who is interested in hosting these voices and community those community spaces were the people who are interested and I kind of I sense that in sort of in the middle of doing the work um, but then even more so after having it 
up there and speaking to the, to the people who were coming in and out of them, that it was more important for me to like have those ears on the work than it was for me to have like a complete stranger who like felt like an institutional sign off was the thing that they needed in order to care. Yeah. And so like a large part of it, too, was just recognizing like it's not a podcast. And that's OK. It's OK that it's not a podcast. And I think that like the, the moment that I realized that I was like, you know what? This can be so many other things in a really great way, and it doesn't need to be a great podcast, and that's awesome, and I'm going to just move with that. Um, and that's been the case with a lot of my work, too, where I'm like, I don't, there's no home for it, um, or at least like um, nowhere in particular that I can think of to send these things, so I'm just going to put it out in the world, and then it'll find its home when it's ready. Um, and they have. like A lot of the things that I've worked on have found homes. It's been by, by building relationships and just putting out there and, and seeing who listens and, and who, you know, who's interested. Um, right, so sorry, this is, um, this is a picture. So this is the first place we went. This is the Salvadoran consulate in Brentwood, Long Island. Um, this is their waiting room. For, this is their waiting room. The, uh, the consulate, like the consul is like literally his office is like behind this. And people were, you see those chairs sort of off to the left. That's where people were just waiting to get their deweys, their, you know, I don't know how to say. And then behind that, you can see this white square thing. That's our interactive wall. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. We had an interactive wall where we asked the Salvadoran community to come and put their own objects, notes, and photos about the legacy of the war in their own lives. And we took it with us across the tour, across the US, and now to El Salvador. So if you go to a, and the exhibit in El Salvador, um, you'll see the culmination of all of these different things. Um, and this is in Brooklyn. And this is the interactive wall. So this is just what we had just in Washington. That was our third stop. And the wall is like completely full now of, of photos and notes from that time. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd share uh, the project I'm working on now. Uh, this is, um, it was a commission actually, an arts organization in Los Angeles reached out to Bear and I to figure out a way to tell stories about this site. It's exactly what it looks like now. It's a former rail yard in the middle of Los Angeles is an, in an area that's going through a lot of change right next to the LA River, which is going through its own uh, revitalization efforts. So it's a coveted piece of land. Um, and in the next seven years, it will become a, a state park. So they brought us to this place and they're like, figure out a way to, to tell stories about this site and perhaps the communities around it and what sort of meaning it holds for people. So, um, so this is it. It's actually out in the world now. It's a very DIY podcast that Ibi is editing with me, which is really great to have her on, on the team with us. Um, the photography is by Bear. The composition of the music is by Bear's brother, Luis Guerra. Um, and and we are, um, you know, we are, we're holding exhibits um, and public forums and tours of this place. Um, and the stories are really touching on all sorts of issues that are very LA, but very urban in general, uh, whether they be, you know, homelessness, immigration, um, the lack of open space, crime, gentrification. But we, we've spent also about seven, eight months going to the bow tie and, and meeting people for whom this place has, has any meaning. Uh, and also just documenting the passage of time. The bow tie has become kind of a, a dump site for, for a lot of folks. People just go there, they think it's abandoned, they throw cassettes, Kenny Loggins tapes, and what have you, shoes. The, the shoe thing is funny. We actually saw the shoe and Bear photographed it, and the next day we met the guy who had thrown it there, and it was his old shoe. And then we, so many stories have happened that way where we just keep going back there and we realize we connect the dots and we're like, oh, 
people do pass through this place. It does have meaning. You know, it seems abandoned and nondescript, but it's a really rich space. So this, this here I'm about to show you is a video. It's part of the video installation that's now at a university in LA. Um, and this is a collaboration with the video artist Maya Santos using my sound, Bear's photography, and her video. jump into an upcoming project. I'm going to go fast so that we can do a Q&A. Um, so I have a few things in the works, um, but one of the things is um, a continuation of that episode that I played a little piece of, the Quevedo is about my family, um, and it's going to be still in flux. I also recognize now, having finished or gone gotten to this point with Reconstrucción, that right now my idea is to do kind of a continuation of that project, focusing, doing like a short run podcast series, focusing on each member of my family, um, and then a sort of um, online multimedia using um, family archives and um, also in collaboration with my friends who are artists as well. Um, and, but but who knows, like maybe two years from now, I'll be sitting here and I'll be like, now it's a pizzeria and it's a, <laughs> um, so I'm gonna skip through this. This is a, um, drawing that my brother did. There's a piece of audio attached to it I don't have where he's talking about, um, he had this memory of meeting our grandmother, or he, no, sorry, he made up a grandmother, sorry. He made up a grandmother because he didn't have one um, for a class assignment and he wrote this whole thing um, about his grandma. Um, and it only was like years and years and years later that I was like, wait, why is, <laughs> who is this person that you're writing about? Um, and then this is, um, I'm gonna just play you a clip of sort of what that's gonna look like. This is. Um, my mom again, you heard her in the first part, um, like number one collaborator on this, um, really. I'm just gonna play you a little clip, an example of what that project is gonna be. So I came back, um, you know, uh, was a stripper, made money. Discovered this really interesting thing, and you don't know this about me, but discovered this really interesting way of, of being that I had never known, that I couldn't remember ever knowing which was like being really carefree. All I did was work my stripper job and party and buy nice things. That's all I did. You just get up and go. Like you don't sit around kind of going, oh, you know, what about rent? And where will we find food? And, you know, how will I get my mom out of the hospital? How, you know, how do I forge my mom's signature? I remember this like epiphany of thinking, oh, this must be what it's like to have a childhood. And then this is sort of, this was supposed to come after. My brother has this thing where he made up a grandmother, and then I had a memory of meeting my grandmother when I was a kid, and then realized, obviously, that's not true, because I never met her. Um, and an artist friend of mine who's worked on me, worked with me on Reconstrucción, um, drew that memory for me. And so this is, uh, this is a drawing of, I had this memory of me being in my grandmother, my mom dropping me off at my grandmother's house as a kid. And he, I described it to him, and there's audio of me describing this memory, um, and he drew it out for me. Um, and so this, that's sort of part of it um, as well. So I think we're going to open things up to Q&A now. Um, Can you guys talk about funding? How do you make this stuff actually happen? 
Do you, you want to start? Yeah. So reconstrucción. Um, I'm gonna admit I was okay. So one, I was a student when I started doing this, so I had a lot more free time than I currently do, which was a blessing, and I didn't realize it. It's also way more broke than I am now, so that was stressful. Um, but we did an Indiegogo campaign. We got a little bit of grant money from the uh, National Association of Latino Arts and Culture, um, which um, was really nice, but not nearly enough to like make the project happen. It was like kind of like it felt more like um, it felt like. It was like affirming that they were like, yes, your project is good. But it was also like, here's a dollar, good luck. Like, it's like, go buy something pretty. <laughs> um, but then we did an Indiegogo campaign. I've done like three in my lifetime now, which means that I can never ask anyone for money ever again. Um, the last one, we didn't even hit our goal at the end, if I'm being honest. We got, sh we hit, we got short of our goal, um, which was fine. We made it work, but a little disappointing. Uh, but again, the third time around, I was like, I'm surprised we even got that far. Um, but it's stressful. It's a stressful way to go about funding things. It's a lot of like you staring at your phone and your computer and refreshing and being like, oh my God, no one's donated in three hours. Are we like, is this gonna, is this totally gonna be a disaster? Um, but that's, yeah, that's a way to do it. And then grants, grants are the big one. Um, and it's super scary. Like before I had actually applied to a grant, I thought it was just something that like big organizations did. And, um, but there are places online, there are resources um, and, once and it really helps you writing a grant really helps you focus the work too in a lot of ways and figure out how to talk to it like the the thing that i said at the beginning of the three part like it's part one is this thing part two is this thing that's what was written in the grant and i've said i've used that language for like the last three years because it was the most concise and compelling way i've learned to talk about the project so i think grants are really helpful monetarily but it can also really help you focus in your vision um, in a lot of ways too um, and that can that can really serve you in the long run yeah, yeah, and for your pitch and for your ability to create community around it, all of it. I mean, I think the exercise of writing a grant is a very important one, even when you don't get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, would say I'm really bad at asking for money, and I have this, this thing that I've had since forever when I started doing this, which I don't want to... I don't want to associate money with my work, but of course I need the money. And of course I'm bitter when I don't get paid for doing work that I really love and that I think I'm good at. So, you know, I, um, I heard this, this thing that Joseph Kudalka, the photographer, said at a presentation he gave a couple of years ago that really resonated with me, which is learn to categorize the value of your work and, and know when a certain job you're doing is your passion project, when it's something that you're okay to compromise with a little bit, and when you're willing to do some work that is like, I don't give a shit, I'll just do it, and now whatever the client wants, I will do. You know, like, learn to, to have different relationships with this type of work and know when the best paying work subsidizes the other. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done translation for years and it's always paid better than journalism, mm. always. And it's paid for my international trips. I mean, it, it's kind of mind boggling because translation to me is so easy. You know, I could yeah. do it in my sleep, but whatever it takes, you know. And so I, I think like for a good five years, I, I did this thing where I went the grant route I had other better paying work that subsidized my personal work. Um, I did journalism as a, a, you know, a staff for, for many years for health insurance, for community, all that stuff. But um, you know, I, I think my best advice is to, to always have, if, if you wanna do this kind of work, always have 
a project going on that you really want to do that you're committed to like be stubborn about it and stick with it like the minute you decide that's no longer important to you um to work you know one hour in the weekends or however long it takes to have these personal projects the minute you give that up and you kind of do sell your soul to making money and doing work that you don't care about that relationship is going to erode and you will find it really hard to get back to it. I think it's a mix of being stubborn and just resourceful and, and people realizing that like that you're committed to this vision or this idea. And then, you know, the longer you do it, people will ask you for things. Collaborators will show up or people will commission you, but, but it doesn't happen overnight, sadly. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of stubbornly being out there and, and, and trying to realize your vision, however small it is. Yeah. And, and I think the grants too, you know, like you apply to the smaller grants, don't go for the NEA grant straight out, you know. Um, and, and then one last thing that I'm really very bad at, but I have found someone who's very good at, and I, you know, I've, I've seen how that helps, is asking people with money for money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, this last project, this last commission south of Fletcher, we work with with an arts organization and the director of that organization can straight up go to rich families and be like, here's what these people I'm working with are doing. We need $20,000. And that is how she's raised money for this thing. It's amazing for me to watch. But there's a lot of people out there in the world who have money and they don't know what to do with it. Which and, is crazy if you think about insane. it. Like I know every, I think everyone in this room is probably like, what? Like, what? <laughs> What is extra money? It does exist. Uh-huh. It happens. And I think, yeah, and I think that's where you you narrowing down your grant proposal really helps because mm-hmm. then you could be straight to the point and it's like, this is what I want to do this work, but I can't do it without your money. So you yeah. got to donate. I worked at a gelato shop while I was touring Reconstrucción. Um, I had the money from our Indiegogo campaign and I had money that I had saved and I had a little bit of grant money and I still worked the job. Like I was still like I was still like scooping gelato on like four days a week. So like that's just to say, and that's not to be like a bummer about it. Um, but it's hustle. Like it's a lot of hustle because these are like these are can be hard um, projects to sell, um, and they can be hard to find homes for. But um, you just gotta you just gotta make it happen. That was my thing. Like I was like, you know what? Like I'll go broke. I'll eat like tuna sandwiches every single night because I care about this job and I don't think that's where we should be obviously. Um, but, but I just, yeah, I was scooping gelato and trying to make it work and, and it was super painful sometimes, but it also, the project mattered to me and I, and, and then the work, the response that we got made it worth it. Like I was like, Oh my God, I could scoop gelato for the rest of my life. If it means that I get to like be in communication and engage with people around this work in the way that I've gotten to for like three months. Um, so that's just a little, but gelato. Gelato, and I also gained a lot of weight, so it was, <laughs> I, it was good for the for the future when I didn't, you know, have as much food. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I wanted to. It's like another money question, but in a different direction. So I really appreciate the thought and the language that you've been using around the extractive nature of journalism and documentary. And I'm just wondering, when you have a project where it's not clear necessarily that it's traditional journalism, then philosophically how you talk about that and how you think about that when your work is more collaborative with the subject, but you, I'm assuming that you weren't paying folks to lend you their objects or paying people to tell you their stories and you're getting paid. So on one level, I totally get it because you're doing work, but at the same time, just you know, kind of how you think about that. 
I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a I think that's a great question and something that I wrestled with a lot too. Um, I like no one. The thing is, no one, no one around my project got paid. Like the money that we raised, like none of that. It was for expense. It was basically for expenses and for us to survive. Like there was no profit being made. Like none of it was like fun money. It was all like we need this to get there. Like we will not be able to bring the exhibit if we don't have money for the bus or have money for a plane. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree. I thought I thought about that a lot too. Is like what's the because I don't think it, uh, a journalistic relationship necessarily needs to be transactional. But there is the reality of that. And I think there was a listserv conversation about this. The NYC listserv had a conversation about this recently um, that I still didn't answer because I'm still trying to figure that out, like what that means. Um, but, but yeah, I think the, my philosophy around it was very much like this money cannot be going towards like me going out and having a spa day. Like this money is for the work and for getting their voices out there and, and sharing it. Um, and that's how I, yeah, that's how I thought about it, but I'm still very much in, in, you know, I think it's a conversation that needs to continue because it's also gets way more complicated when you're, um, when you, also when people are sharing really traumatic um, and really heavy work, um, really heavy pieces of their lives, um, it does feel unfair in a lot of ways. And I think it's okay to admit that. And, and also to say like, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know, but I'd like to figure it out at some point. I don't know yeah. if you have a more clear answer around it. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, when, whenever money's involved, it's always a little tortured for me, to be honest with you. And I, um, I feel like I've worked very hard to get to this moment where I feel like I am getting a living wage out of the work that I, that I do independently. But um, I, there's still a part of me that's the journalist that is like, I, I can't pay somebody to, to uh, speak to me. And that's where I feel like the trust and the relationship that precedes the interview comes in is I, I try to be very clear to people that I, you know, I can't pay them for their interview, but I want them to be invested and I want them to feel valued and to give me a lot of feedback throughout the process so that they feel like this is a fair representation. Where we do pay people is in the, when we have presentations or um, tours, like we're having these tours as part of the South of Fletcher and we're giving honorariums to people like $300 for their one hour of their time or something. But they were, I, I know they're not doing it for the money anyway. At that point, we're like very involved with each other and, um, and, and you know, I, uh, I appreciate that they're, that they're stuck it out. I mean, part of documentary work that's so difficult is like a lot of these folks that you're gonna be working with don't really know what you're doing and you need to explain them along the way and like, you know, hold them by the hand and, and yet you don't want to scare them and say, we're going to be following you or spending time with you for a year. Mm -hmm. You know, like you ideally want the folks to like be invested in this thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky thing. Another thing, you know, I was listening to Ana Yancy speak on the very first conversation we had about covering the, um, the children who are being kept in the detention facilities right now. And and how this, this family asked her for a ride from Phoenix to LA. And I don't know how many times I've been and felt like I'm in that situation as a reporter. And for me, taking off my, my journalism badge or whatever, like feeling like I don't have those, uh, one, I'm not employed full time by a news organization has allowed me to do more with and for people and, and people, when people ask me for money, I give it to them. What I have, what I can. I've bought things for people. Yeah. 
many times. I don't have, yeah, I don't have money. I don't have money. That's the other thing. It's like, I think if I had the money, I would. <laughs> but I don't right, have, right. I don't but have like the money, but I try to get back in, yeah, like I try to get back in other out. ways. Like Julio's, um, Julio's in a very financially precarious situation. His daughter needed um, shoes for school. I was like, I can do that. Like, I can buy a pair of shoes. That's nothing, that's no skin off my back. I don't feel like that's um, journalistically, like, it's not biasing me towards him. To me, he's a person. Like, we are, we are, he's not just someone I'm interviewing. He's my friend. He's someone who's let me sleep in his house. Like, I've gone to work with him every single day. And it felt like to, like, use the journalistic sort of, like, I can't, I'm objective after a certain point feels a little bit insincere. Like it sort of mm-hmm. feels like an excuse to be like, I can't, I'm sorry. And it's like, no, I can. And I'm going to do the little bit that I can, but I'm also not, um, you know, and, th- but that was also post reporting as well. That was also post interview. Um, so that was a little bit, I think that was a, a little bit of, of it for me, but you can, I think you can, you can pay people in, in the ways that you, that you can, or I try to pay people in the ways that I can, right? Like, even if I don't have that monetary, something and I don't I'm not just talking about like buying shoes I'm just talking about like spending time with like the people that I interview want to spend time with me so when I'm back there even if I'm not there for work I'm gonna like go and grab lunch and like hang out with them and like go to the park and play with their kids and in a lot of ways that feels like sort of honoring the relationship and sort of just being like instead of being like okay I recorded you and the project is done bye like thanks for doing Mm -hmm. that with me um returning and sort of um, honoring that relationship is super, super important. And I think it can be just as important, if not more important than, um, than paying, though paying is also, uh, money is important for everyone. Mm-hmm. We need it to survive, unfortunately, capitalism. So. <laughs> but I'll also add one more thing, is, and this I've been doing in the last couple of years, is I, I make myself available and do want to teach whoever wants to be taught how to tell stories with audio or what have you, and I see that as my way of paying back. I mean, I don't know if it sounds cheesy, but... I have met a lot of people who have, who have been in parts of projects that I've been in who have then expressed interest in doing this. And I, I you know, we facilitate workshops, we work together. And I, I, I really, at the end of the day, I would love to see my role more as of a, yeah, facilitator and, and, and curating other people's stories. Um, I'm not there yet, nor do I have the funds, nor do I have a nonprofit to do this, but, but I do... I do see that as a result of a lot of these relationships and I, and I honor that and I do this out of my free time. I mean, I volunteer to do this sort of thing or to mentor people whenever possible. So, but yeah, once money comes into the equation, it's, it's always complicated. And I think we have time for one or two more questions. This may end up being a bit redundant. Um, this question is primarily for Saide, uh, because uh, am I right that you're full-time at Latino USA? Sorry? Um, am I full-time? Yeah. Yes, I'm a full-time associate producer. Okay, so I guess, um, yeah, sort of building on the last question, kind of a two-parter, I guess I'm just curious how you balance um, your approach with um, being at a, you know, an NPR uh, show, uh, and then also practically speaking, in particular for all this amazing other kind of creative work, like how, how you just balance that really practically, doing that at the same time as you yeah. have this full-time job. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it's, um, I think, because uh, a full-time, this is a thing that um, a lot of the time I get done with work and I get home and I've been like, I have an idea for a project, I have the materials. And I'm like, I cannot sit in front of Pro Tools for another hour. Like I will, I will throw myself out the window if I have to like listen and edit like a breath again. Um, 
but it's also you just have to push yourself to do it in a lot of ways. Um, and and the balance, I'm still figuring out the balance, honestly, um, because a lot of the time I do feel super exhausted. And like I think on a like a a spiritual, mental, emotional level, being a journalist and producing work is really exhausting. Like it can really take a lot out of you, um, especially given the world that we live in right now and like what is happening and what we're often being forced to report on. Like it's heavy, it's super heavy. And like, I have to give myself the permission to take a break and not be constantly working on things. Like, I think it's okay to not be producing um, on my own projects outside of my work and just focus on being the best at my job that I can be. Um, and now I'm like hitting a moment, right? Where it's, where I'm figuring it out and I feel like I'm, I'm uh, much more, much more willing to go home and sit in front of Pro Tools, even though I've been doing it all day long. Um, but I don't judge myself when I come home and it's like, nah, that's not what we're doing today. Um, which means that things take longer, but I'm also like, I'm my own boss. Like I'm, you know, and I'm gonna change my expectations for myself depending on the day. Um, but I know that the work is gonna get done um, and I try to set longer term goals. Like I'd like to have a project done in six months. And then, you know, as, you know, when month, month one is over and I haven't done anything, it's like, okay, well, month two, we better get, get our asses into gear. Um, and that's, that's really it. But I'm still figuring out that balance, too, because it is really, um, it can be really exhausting. It can be really, really, um, really tiring in a lot of ways. Um, but, but the personal stuff is just, is fulfilling in a, in a totally different way. And I think that that um, is often, like, I love the little, you get a little, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a little something um, when you finish something that's completely your own that you directed for yourself. Um, and so I try to remember how good that feels um, when I get home and I'm exhausted. And sometimes that can help push me in, in the direction. But, but the balance is, yeah, it's, it's something that's day by day for me at this point. If I figure it out, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, so right now I'm working on a project that's discovering who my dad was before he died when I was six years old. And I come from a bad, diverse background in terms of I've worked in film, I've performed as a storyteller on stage, and I've worked in radio and podcasting. At what point do you choose which medium or mediums that you're gonna work with for a project that you're working on? Like, where do you say in the midst of your project, like, this is where it's gonna go? Or these are the two places or three places I want it to go? Or like, oh, this is gonna be a photo audio thing, or this yeah. is gonna be a video. Um, Rooks, do you wanna answer first? Sure, I mean, I think for me, it's uh, it's different from you, Saida, probably because I have this ongoing collaboration with my husband, and so we always try to think visually and orally about you know every project, and we know it's gonna be some sort of combination or one of these uh, forms of presentation, which in some ways is limiting. In other ways, it really opens up the possibilities. Um, Honestly, I, I think I'll go back to collaboration. I think that's where having a collaborator and working as part of a team, a team of your own creation, of your own vision really helps. Because if I was on my own, um, I think, I mean, I just, I, I try to think of, of, uh, of ways to, to challenge my own perception of, of storytelling all the time. And I, and I would like to think that other people give me the criticism that I need and the direction that I need because, you know, we do what we're comfortable with and we, you know, we, we start out in a project recording audio and we think that's, that's, you know, that's what it ought to be. But being a freelancer also and having worked independently, you quickly realize that if you do um, a project strictly on one medium, you're not going to be able to 
make a living. So you have to like dream up different versions and ways of telling a story. And once you get that going, then you that opens up your mind to to the myriad ways you could tell a story. Um, and then lastly, with my own uh, obsession, concern with reaching people outside of the public radio realm, I know that I don't want to stick to podcasts. I don't want to just stick to public radio. So what are the ways in which I can get this out into the world um, and, you know, and have it be useful to people in different realms? Um, that is what pushes me. But at the end of the day, I am very invested in, in my work seeing the light. My husband's the kind of artist that like, he just wants to do his work and he, he's perfectly happy if he does it and it's beautiful and it never sees the light. Mm -hmm. And I'm like very much a journalist and public radio person. I'm like, ah, but put it out there. It doesn't matter if it's not great, you know? Mm -hmm. So we keep each other in check, but I, that relationship, that back and forth really, really helps f then in figuring out where does it belong? What should it sound like? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll use Reconstruction as an example. I mentioned this um, before, but it was an audio, originally it was an audio photo slideshow. I presented it as such, and in the middle of presenting it, um, was like, oh my God, this is so not what this is supposed to be. Um, and there were a couple of problems that like, I found that I had issues with, um, I just felt like the material wasn't, um, wasn't deep enough. I felt like I needed to go back and talk to people. Um, I also just felt like in terms of how it was engaging the audience, I didn't want people to be sitting in the dark watching a slideshow. It just felt like not, um, not the best use of the material. Um, but then also I think what it comes down to too is like, who is your audience? Who is the person that you're making the work for? And for me, I was making the work for the Salvadoran community and I felt like, um, that helped me really narrow down um, how I was going to present it too, because I wanted it to be accessible um, and I wanted it to feel um, approachable in a lot of ways. Um, but it was also over time, like through spending many, many hours and putting <laughs> a slideshow together and then realizing like, oh, actually this isn't the way I want to do it. I think the best, the best advice I can give you is show your work to your friends constantly. Like show it to different friends with different tastes um, because that's what I did and like, and they helped me sort of narrow down part of it. Um, but in a lot of cases, it feels like a gut feeling too. Like mm -hmm. I just kind of knew like, this isn't it. Like, this was nice, this is okay, this isn't it. And I'm gonna go back to the drawing board and I'm, I'm gonna, you know, now I know the material back and forth. I can play with it a little bit more and try different things. Um, and, and yeah, and then also just like watching, looking at um, work that is not podcasts or audio is a really big one too. Like watching films, watch it, you know, mm -hmm. reading the paper, reading books. Like those are the ways that I feel like I find myself inspired to check out, um, to move beyond the medium of just earbuds. Cause I feel like, um, because yeah, it's comfortable and we know how to do it in a lot of ways, right? We know we've heard people do it well. And so we feel like, okay, like why not just do that thing? Um, but if you push yourself outside of your first instinct, um, I think you'll, you'll, you'll sort of get closer um, and, and just trial and error as well really, really works. Yeah, I mean, I would just add too that uh, sometimes I worry that we, we tell stories um, to ourselves or to people like us all the time, you know, and we are modeling after other people like us in the industry. And it's, it's you know, we all think our work is, is awesome, but what do other people think, right? And I try to cultivate relationships with people outside of my journalism audio world 
and people who I know will tell me when something is bad. Mm. Or I, I, at least I try to have relationships with, with the select number of people that I know they can tell me if something sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Non-audio people are great because you can watch their eyes glaze over when, when, you've, <laughs> when, when you've lost them. Like you see them listening like three minutes in, yeah. um, half a minute in, you're like, and they don't care about the sound design or the yeah, face. Exactly. They don't give like, a shit oh, about perfect, that. Perfect, perfect yeah. cut. Oh, <laughs> love that breath. Like they're like, you just watch them like, oh, that was nice. It's like, okay, cool. So I got to go back to the drawing board. Like it's time to try to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're out of time. Thank you yeah. y'all so much Thank for, you. for coming. Yeah.